Welcome to Brain Nevat. We are delighted to be joined by one of our favorite and most frequent guests, Travis Timmerman, and we're going to be talking about one of our favorite TV shows, Squid Game. Travis, would you like to tell us a bit about it? Yeah, sure. So for those of you that have seen it, here's a quick refresher. For those of you that haven't, here's the basic premise of the show. We find our gambling addict protagonist who feels shame for not being able to take care of his daughter is approached by a mysterious man who offers to let him play a game where if he loses, he gets slapped in the face. If he doesn't have money, if he wins, he gets a lot of money out of desperation and economic need. He decides to play the game until he wins. Once he does win, he's given a mysterious card. If he calls a number on the back of the card, he agrees to play more games with the promise of some money. He does this, then he finds himself drugged inside a van, given a tracksuit and a number, number 456, and no name, along with 455 other players. Then he's forced to play a series of children's games where the stakes are as high as it could possibly be. If you win, you move on to the next round with the ultimate aim of getting a life-changing amount of money. If you lose, you die. So Squid Game has received a lot of attention. My understanding is it's the highest grossing series of all time. And because it's received a lot of attention, because it's so provocative, various people have chimed in about what the movie means. And I guess our discussion today will be less about what the movie means and more about the kind of philosophical problems that are raised in the film. So some people have said the film raises certain um, Marxist problems. So issues around wealth versus poverty and different classes and whether the the, the working class has control over their destiny and the exploitation that the, the wealthier classes inflict upon the poorer class. Those, those kind of interpretations of the film are interesting, and I do think we should cover them. But what's more interesting to me are some of the ethical dilemmas that are raised, especially around killing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I agree that that's the underlying primary message of the series that's thematically right there. It's basically say this somewhat despairingly, but not totally a, a sort of derivative hybrid of parasite and the anti-capitalist message of parasite combined with the hunger games <laughs> for an ultra gory kill fest. And at the same time, I agree with you. I think it's quite interesting to discuss some other ethical dilemmas that are raised by the games that they're forced to play that maybe weren't necessarily at the forefront of the writers and the actors' minds. So, I mean, here's one that's sort of interesting. After the first game, once everyone realizes that it's a life or death situation, where it's just red light, green light. So you just get to run to a finish line when the light is green. And then when they say red light, you have to stop. And if you don't stop, you get killed. You don't get to the finish line within the time frame, you're killed. Most of the people are killed there. Seems clearly wrong. But one of the rules of the game is that if the majority of participants want to opt out, they can't, although they won't get any money. The money will go to the victims of the people that they have already murdered. So when that happens, the vote is evenly split, except for the number one person, the first contestant, who is an elderly man. And after seeming to deliberate a bit, he votes to decline playing the game. And then they let everybody go. And then they offer people the opportunity to come back 
and almost everybody does because they judge their situation to be better in this life or death game than how well they would fare in society and the outside world. So I think this is a nice illustration of what is sometimes called the all or nothing problem. It seems permissible to do nothing. That is, it seems permissible for the people who run the game to not benefit these random strangers. Yet it seems impermissible for them to enter into this contractual agreement to play games where their life is on the line. Even if these people are judging correctly that they will be better off playing the games than they would in society. And it seems weird that it'd be permissible to do nothing, but wrong to do something that would benefit people by their own rights. Yeah. So let's have a look at this assumption. I mean, I think this is done beautifully as a part of the series where you've got the drama building and you also have these different levels of consent. So as you say, when people first sign up to the game, they sign up with a certain amount of information that they're going to be playing a game that if they lose, they'll be eliminated, but they don't know that elimination means death. They might think that it involves some kind of loss because the prior game they were playing involved getting slapped in the face, but hard to think that they could know that it would be death. And we might think that in other words, to put people in that situation is immoral. You have lied to people through a mission in a very serious way that has severe consequences, irreversible consequences, and you might think that's immoral. The second case is more complicated. In other words, everybody who plays knows that there is the risk of death and they know that there is the opportunity of massive reward and then they willingly participate. Now, what you've argued is that, well, it must still be wrong to run this game with these people, even under these conditions. And as you said, there's some strange asymmetry that's going on here, which is that you have no obligation to help these people. Maybe you have an obligation to charity, but not a specific obligation. So one ought to be charitable. It's a good virtue, but you don't owe a particular person charity. So the funders of this game who put forward millions of dollars, uh, I constantly watch the game with the calculator converting the South Korean currency, both into South African rands and American dollars, just so I could translate it in my mind as to how much was at stake. But if there's no obligation to give them the money just for its own sake, is there anything wrong in creating an environment where these people are putting their lives at risk in playing the game where they will derive a benefit? And that strikes me as an interesting puzzle. Part of the commentary is the sort of claim that society in South Korea is so bad that you're better off joining the game. And clearly the game is a horrible place to be because you run the risk of dying. That's meant to be the kind of capitalist critique. But it also strikes me as, as over the top to sort of say that life in South Korea is so bad that you'd rather be playing Hunger Games. Yeah, excellent. So there's a lot of important stuff going on there. I think your discussion of consent is really important. And what this shows is that consent isn't morally transformative in cases in which you would still be causing gratuitous suffering, even if it's true that the people in question consent. So it does get fairly hazy because even with the second round of games, when most of people, not everyone, but the vast majority of people willingly come back, they know that the games are life or death, but they don't seem to be aware of the fact that there can only be one winner of the game. And maybe it's true that if they knew how low the odds were of them winning these huge amounts of cash, maybe they would come back. 
But of course, we can revise the thought experiment to imagine that they're aware of all of the normally relevant facts. They know how much money they could get. They know what their odds are relative to everybody else. They know exactly what the games are. We can fill in the details contrary to how it's told in Squid Game and imagine that still the majority of people come back and enter into this willingly. They truly consent that the throughout all the conditions for consent, they're all met. Still seems wrong, I think, because it's causing unnecessary gratuitous suffering. But this is, I take a good argument for a sort of impartial consequentialist view. So I do think maybe contrary to the intuitions that most people have that I was mentioning earlier, that maybe you really are obligated to be charitable in a way where you're going to produce the best outcome. That it's not permissible, contrary to what people think, to not just help the people in the first place. And then it's wrong to make them enter games that are going to result in their death most of the time for your sort of sick amusement. And that's how I want to take care uh, of that puzzle. It's a very interesting response because it's the opposite of my utilitarian intuition. Oh yeah? Yeah. So, okay, so I, I, this is, this is a, a parallel problem, which I really think shares all the same principal issues, and yet it doesn't involve killing. So the other night it was raining outside and my partner and I didn't feel like going out for dinner because it was raining. And I said, why don't we order dinner in? So we'll call Uber Eats and Uber Eats will deliver some food. And he said, no, 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 we can't do that because you're going to force someone to drive in the rain. And I said, no, 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 we're not, we're not forcing anyone. The Uber driver doesn't have to come out. Here in South Africa, Uber drivers generally drive motorcycles. And so driving in the rain is quite uncomfortable, more so than if you're driving a car. And, and he said, no, no, you, you, you can't order on Uber Eats because this person's going to be driving in the rain and it's going to be very uncomfortable for them. You, it is impermissible. It is morally impermissible to place that order. And that struck me as just bad reasoning, because if I were to ask that person, would you prefer me to place the order or not? He would say, yes, please place the order. At least I'm going to earn some money. Now, your, your response to this is, A, it's impermissible for me to place the order, and B, I'm morally obligated to pay him that money anyway without the order being placed. I should rather... Uh, place a, a bank transfer into his account so that he doesn't have to get on his motorcycle, come out, but he'll still reap the benefits of the tip. Yeah, good. I, I want to avoid the first part of what you say. And it's really interesting that you use that example because my wife and Amanda, I had the exact same debate about Uber Eats as well in New York. So we we're thinking about ordering uh, dinner one night. It was raining out here. It's freezing cold. And they, most people don't even ride motorcycles. They ride like bicycles that have these little jerry-rigged motors on them. And it just because the streets are so crowded. And she made the argument that one of your partners did, which is that it would be impermissible to force someone to endure these terrible conditions just so we can have some extra minor convenience, right? But the thing about that is they're already on the clock. With Uber, you can choose to work or not work whenever you want. So these are people who've already chosen to work that say, I want to make money. I'll be better off if I do that than if I don't. And then I can benefit them. Now, I don't want to say I'd be obligated. See, this is where I want to resist your conclusion. I don't want to say I'm obligated to just give the person the money. I have no way of doing that. I don't know who they are. There's no way I can get through the app and just tell them, 
hey, where are you? I want to Venmo some money in your account. The only way I can put money in their pocket and benefit them is by put placing the order and then tipping them very generously because of the extra harsh conditions. But okay, in- but I, I could alter the example, right? So suppose Uber lets you know, Uber Eats lets you know ahead of time who your, yeah. de- your delivery person is going to be right. and you don't have to place the order They're not, and, and gives you their bank account number, just suppose, then yeah. would you be obligated to pay them? Yeah, assuming that's going to be what's best. Yeah, it's very counterintuitive, but I think I would be obligated to just give them that benefit. If they need the money that badly, that they're willing to weather these conditions and I can spare them that, but and still have a perfectly healthy dinner, then yeah, I think I'm obligated to do that as demanding as it may be. So I'm going to try and one of my like favorite things to do is to tease Jason for being utilitarian. And it's so fun having <laughs> two of you guys on the show. So I'm going to wield my sword in many ways. Part of the way to make utilitarian squeal is in the tweaking of the cases. So let's go back to our squid game world and let's do a little bit of tweaking. So one is you've drawn a distinction with the Uber drivers. In other words, there's a difference if someone is already on the clock. And so you might think maybe it depends on who the nature of those participants are. If they are people who regularly risk their lives for reward. So imagine that all the people that you recruit in squid game are mercenaries. So they're paid a salary to fight in battles. You might say, well, these guys, there's a chance they're going to die anyway, and they do this sort of stuff for money anyway. So they're not just ordinary citizens. They're not just people down on their lack. These are hardened people, so we can recruit them into the game. The other one is, if you want to do utility calc, one way to sort of up the ante on the pleasure front would be to have more and more viewers of the games. So the way it's set up in Squid Game is that you've got a very small group of wealthy funders who are sort of sitting in these golden masks and watching the games play. But we can imagine that this thing was televised live and that you had millions of people around the world watching the show and enjoying it and deriving immense amount of pleasure from it, as Squid Game has been. So in other words, imagine that you have Squid Game 2, this guy, this time, guys, it's the reality TV version. And people just go, that sounds amazing. I loved the first one. Can't wait for the sequel. I'm going to root for this. Like all the immense amounts of joy. And assume again that what we can do to tweak the sort of levels of suffering people die in the show in quite grisly ways is that maybe there's a, a, a painless way for them to die. That when the death event occurs, they're uh, shot in the head um, or a, a cyanide pull and their teeth goes off and kills them painlessly. But we still have the elimination and the death but we reduce the suffering. If I start to amp things up on that level, at some point you're gonna to have to say to me, we're morally obliged to run the reality TV version of Squid Game because as the kind of utilitarian that you are, we must just maximize the good and active and passive things don't seem to matter too much. So it's not just that it's permissible to run the games, it's that we ought to run the games. So one reason that I'm not a strict utilitarian is because when you deal with infinite quantities of goods, you can have two worlds with infinite amount of good where the infinite quantities are the same, the cardinalities line up, but one world is better for a much larger group of people to a much greater degree than the other. So in those cases, I want to say it's not just utility. Sometimes you should do what's called Pareto optimal. But another reason that I'm not a straight utilitarian is I want to adjust not only for dessert, and there's lots of utilitarians that adjust for whether people deserve pleasure or pain. I think we should adjust for that if people can deserve to suffer but also for what Pete Graham calls avoidable harm. So there'll be cases where sometimes someone could freely do something that would benefit them, but they're choosing not to. 
And I want to say in those cases, when we calculate the value of the outcomes, we don't have to hold fixed what those free choices would be. Now that's really abstract, but here's a specific example, right? Suppose there's two shallow ponds. I can save one person. There's one person drowned in each shallow pond. One person is tied down and there's nothing that they can do to save themselves. The other person can freely stand up, but they're choosing not to. Not because they're suicidal, not because their life wouldn't be good for them on the whole. They're just kind of lazy. And if they chose to stand up, they would. Right. Now, suppose that they would live a slightly happier life. On a standard version of utilitarianism, I'd be required to save the person who just is not standing up of their own volition. But I want to say, no, no, it'd be permissible for me to save the person that's tied down because the other person could save themselves and they're choosing not to. Okay. Now, how is that relevant to your question? Well, I want to know why people are getting so much joy from watching people fight to the death for their amusement. I think there's one way of filling out that thought experiment where if people subjected their beliefs to scrutiny, they would see that it's not fitting to take enjoyment in the suffering of others. And if they had the requisite rational capacity to do that, but we're choosing to not exercise it, they would have a very different utility calculation. They would do something else instead that would bring them a great deal of joy. So if they have the requisite rational capacity to subject these beliefs to scrutiny and react differently to the suffering of others, then I want to say we can ignore that in the utility calculation and it could be uh, permissible or better to bring about the world where they don't suffer. Then you could change the thought experiment and say, well, they're robots or they don't have free will or beliefs aren't under any set of actions that are under the volitional control. And once we get to that case, where the world seems very different from now, then I do have to bite the bullet. But I don't have to in the nearby case. But one last thing to your point, Mark, I do think there's a way to set up the case, even with agents, where I would have to say something that is somewhat counterintuitive, right? So the number one player in the game is this elderly man who has a brain tumor. It's not clear how cognizant he is of what's going around him at certain points, but it seems like he's generally there. But he knows that death is near for him. Now, in my view, how bad your death is for you is determined by how much good life it would deprive you of. And for this elderly man, it's not going to deprive him of very much good life at all. Now, that amount of harm seems to be on a par with other harms that people take on in the real world when they play pretty rough sports like uh, rugby or uh, hockey or what Americans call football, but which you really throw an egg with your hand. I don't know why it's not called hand egg, but it's called football. And that, like you said, just insane, serious lifelong injuries with debilitating pain where the net amount of suffering that you endure, the net amount of badness can be comparable to this old man who's risking his life. So I could imagine a version of the Squid Games where it's just people on the verge of death, elderly people, people who are terminally ill, right? People where death is imminent for them and they have days or weeks left and they fight to the death. And then the amount of harm that they would be risking would be the same or less than the amount of harm that people risk in all these other sports that people think is perfectly okay to play. So I have to say, 
well, if people are enjoying the love of the sport and it's not based on these contemptible attitudes and they don't want people to suffer in and of themselves, and that really maximizes utility, there's not something else they could do instead that would bring them just as much enjoyment while giving life extension to the elderly people. Then it seems like that that is on a par with all these other sports that people enjoy and seem to be morally permissible to let them enjoy in spite of that risk. Well, it seems like we can solve a series of um, moral problems at once. So for those people that don't like the state enforcing the death penalty and think that we should abolish prisons, well, if we got a solution for you, <laughs> let's get all those people on death row, release them, put them into Squid Game. They were going to die anyway. They're a bunch of bloodthirsty killers. They're probably going to have a really fun time playing the game. It's their last little bit of machismo. Most of them are going to die. And the last guy, you know, he gets a whole bunch of money. And maybe we can give some of the money to the victims of those that were killed by these death row inmates. That seems to sidestep a bunch of the problems. And I think there's a Gerard Butler movie with a, a premise along these lines. And a Black Mirror episode, too, I think. That's all in those lines. Yes, Black Mirror, one of those wonderful sources of sci-fi and philosophy. So I like uh, Travis's answer because it's sophisticated and it's, it's intuitive and, and plausible. I mean, my answer is just like I think it's fine to order the Uber Eats. It's fine to have the Squid Game. Uh, it's, it's fine. There's a whole lot of people that have opted in. It's causing immense pleasure to everyone else in the reality game version. And in that version, I, I'm fine with the deaths being horrible, Mark. I'm fine with it. I mean, you don't even have to insert that clause. You can have the, the awful, painful deaths. I'm on board with that. But if you want to reduce that suffering as well, then all the better, have those Squid Games. But with one proviso, and this is what I'm uncomfortable about. In Squid Game, it's not that each person is asked after the initial round whether they want to participate. And if they say no, then they go home. It's, the question is, what does the majority want? And that worries me because in the actual movie, what happens is that almost half, just under half, a smidgen under half, do not want to continue. And they're going to have to continue anyway if the other half plus one says we do want to continue. And that worries me. So if we remove that condition and we, we genuinely ask each person, do you want to participate? And they say, yes, I've got no problem with running those squid games. Yeah. I think you bring up an interesting concern here about democracy generally, the idea that you have a tyranny of the majority that you can have an, an unreasonable set of people that bind you to a principle which you vociferously want to reject. And I think it's such a beautiful illustration of that. What's, what's amazing about the show is that it, it keeps digging deeper in terms of some of these principles. So we could take a view that, let's say that this is an immoral setup, that you ought not to be playing these kinds of games. But you have these questions as to what to do, given that you're in this immoral world that you might not be able to exit. One of the great examples of this is in one of the games where you are paired up with someone on the assumption that the person you are paired up with, who you've selected as your partner, will be an ally. And then you are told um, that only one of you can survive. And they play a game of marbles and they can select the rules of the game as well. They can decide whichever kind of marbles game to play. You get this variety of marbles games, but the loser will be executed. And so here you have this interesting question as to whether trying to win that game is immoral because you know that the consequences of you winning will lead to the death of someone else. 
and whether that amounts to you murdering them. They are shot by someone else. They're shot by a guard who works for the Squid Game. They're not shot by you. But is it the same? Yeah, I thought that was a particularly devious plot device that they use because in the previous iterations of the game, for those of you that haven't seen the show, the teams work together. Right? They did for the tug of war. And so people are operating under the assumption reasonably, and then they all end up picking people that they like and then having to enter into this triage situation. Is trying to win the game tantamount to murdering them? Certainly not if murder is by definition wrongful killing. If murder means that you're causing the death of a person that doesn't deserve to die, then it could be tantamount to murder, depending on what the correct account of causation is. Uh, but it would be a case where I think then murder would be morally permissible, at least under some instances of those games. So why think that? Well, this is a triage situation where either both people are going to be killed. I take it if you refuse to play or declare a winner, then you both die. So neither party has an interest in that. And if you win, you get to live at least to the next round. And if you lose, then you die. And this just seems like other triage situations where there's a scarcity of resources. So imagine two people find themselves on a desert island and there's only enough uh, food for one person to live. And if they both split it, they'll both starve to death. Intuitively, it seems permissible for both people to try to get the food for themselves at the expense of the other person's life. And I don't see how this is relevantly different than that. Now, one thing that's sort of interesting is the view of the show itself, insofar as it seems to be trying to prime certain intuitions in that case, is that some characters using deceit to win the game are doing something wrong. But it's not clear why that would be the case. Um, so the protagonist is playing with the old man, who's number one, protagonist is number 456. And he's young, he's got a lot to live for, he wants to be able to take care of his daughter. The old man is on his deathbed, and apparently he's fainting, but acting as if his Alzheimer's means he doesn't even realize that he's playing a game or understand what's going on. And then it's later revealed that he's part of the architect of this entire game. And he just wanted to, <laughs> I guess, go in for one last kick before he exits this world. And the protagonist lies to him about whether he wins each round in order to take the marbles from him and continue living. And then he feels ashamed about this as if he had done something wrong. But it's not clear to me that it's impermissible to lie in that case when it's a life or death situation, especially when the person that you're lying to has so little interest in continued life. There's a lot more at stake for you. And that seems relatively analogous to lying to get some food on a desert island so you can go live for many, many more years and benefit many, many more people. Whereas the other person, if they get the food, will live for another day and then die of some other ailment. But something that worries me is suppose we were to change the case from a triage case. So in the triage case, and I think it's a really good observation that unless one person wins, both lose. So, so let's, let's put that kind of case aside and just alter the case slightly. Suppose both players opt into the game and can opt out once the rules are explained. Okay. 
and then they both choose to play, then is it impermissible for me to be doing what I'm doing? As a player? Yeah. Yeah. This is where I think my sort of utilitarian-like version of consequentialism gets the intuitive view in a way that a lot of standard deontological views don't, right? Because the way that you've just described the case, it looks like it's two willing agents that fully consent to this and they're only putting their own lives on the line. And it seems like you have control over your own life. But on my view, it wouldn't be permissible for you to play if it's not going to bring about the optimal outcome. And I would think in the standard ways of filling in the details, uh, you're going to get a suboptimal outcome if one of those people is killed, if they both could go on and live had they chosen not to play in the first place. So I want to say, yeah, it'd be wrong if it's not bringing about an optimal outcome precisely for that reason, whereas standard deontological views are going to have trouble accounting for that judgment. But that's strange because on that position, you would rule out a lot of games, right? You would rule out rugby because I don't think it's optimal that they play. A lot of people get injured. You would rule out gambling because the house always wins. You would rule out a lot of things that we think should be permissible. Yeah, good. I mean, I don't know about rugby. It could be the case that the injuries are so serious that it really is not a game that should be played professionally. And that might be true of other professional sports as well. And gambling, I think, is a good example of that too. I mean, intuitively, gambling should be legal. The house usually has an advantage. Exceptions might be people that are really good at poker or maybe people who are really good at craps and have enough money. But yeah, I share this intuition that gambling should be legal. But when I look at the effect that it has on society as a whole and the way that it hurts gambling addicts, I've been pushed to the conclusion, at least tentatively, that gambling really shouldn't be allowed precisely because it fails to bring about the partially best outcome. So the show might share some of your intuition. So there's a series of parallel cases in that particular episode. So you mentioned the one with the, the protagonist who um, thinks he's deceiving the old man with, with Alzheimer's. And the justification you've given is that that's permissible, especially because the old man has a brain tumor and he's going to die quite soon. And so the optimal thing is for the young guy with the, the kid to survive. The other cases are where you have the person from North Korea who has escaped and she has a younger brother to look after. And her opponent who is her friend who she'd sort of picked to help to to help in the tug of war game basically commits suicide. So when they the game that they pick is to see who clo how close they can get to putting a marble against the wall. And the South Korean drops him on the floor after the North Korean had thrown it in the aim of trying to win. And so she commits suicide partly on the view that you have a better you, you will you will get more out of life. You've risked your life already to escape a, a tyrannical regime, and you have this brother to look after, and I'm just this uh, young girl. And then you have this interesting case of the business major who is faced with a character called Ali, who is a refugee from Pakistan, and Ali just doesn't want to play this game. Ali doesn't want to have his friend die. He's trying to find a kind of reasonable solution, and the business major knows there is no reasonable solution that one of them is going to die and he thinks well i'll outsmart him in the way that i play this game and they play odds or evens and ali gets him down to one marble and he realizes that unless he uses severe deceit he's going to die and so what he does is he preys on ali's good nature by saying why don't you just sort of stall out 
And if both of us are around, what'll happen is that we'll become one united team and we'll play against all the other stalled out teams and then we'll both survive. And he tricks Ali by filling up his bag with stones instead of marbles. And then he goes and tells a guard what he's done and says, I have all the marbles and I didn't use violence to get to this outcome. So I played the, I played the rules of the game correctly and Ali is then shot. And the perspective of the show is to say that the South Korean who commits suicide has done a noble thing, that it's understandable what the protagonist has done, given the nature of the old man's predicament, but that the business major has done something bad and that he will be punished for it. And the sort of perspective of the show changes against him at that moment. He becomes a sort of reprehensible character and viewed by the others as a bad guy. Yeah, that seems exactly right to me. And I think it's grist for my mill because the protagonist against the old man seems like he has more to live for. The person that essentially commits suicide so that the North Korean defector can continue living, I think judges correctly that she has more to live for. But in the case of Ali and the banker, it's not clear that the banker has more to live for than Ali. In fact, it seems like he's gotten into his position by making a series of bad choices in his life, even after having a great deal of privilege, because he often mentioned that he went to this prestigious university for business. Whereas Ali is immigrant from Pakistan who has a wife and kids that he's trying to provide for and has been cheated out of his wages by his employer and he's continually had his good nature taken care of. So it looks like this is a case where, honestly, he is doing something, the banker is doing something wrong by deceiving Ali, not in virtue of the deception, but in the virtue of the fact that Ali at least has as much to live for as he does and likely more. So if their lives are on a par, then maybe they should play a fair game and whoever is the vector gets to live. And if Ali has more to live for, then he's obligated by my lights to do something very demanding, namely essentially commit suicide so that Ali can continue to live and have a chance of getting the money and improving his and his family's life. So Travis and I have both been raked over the coals by Mark for being utilitarians or consequentialists or utilitarian adjacent. And he's posed all these difficult problems for us and we've come up with different solutions. But Mark leans towards deontology and he's going to have some difficulty as well. I assume, Mark, that if, you, if you're a deontologist, you're going to think that the whole thing is wrong from beginning to end. If there's deception involved, no good. If there's suicide involved, no good because you're not fulfilling a duty to yourself. If there's murder involved, no good. You can't use others as a means to an end. Um, the whole thing from beginning to end is wrong on your view. As a deontologist watching Squid Game, I don't think you'd enjoy it at all. You can't root for anyone to win because rooting for someone to win means using someone else as a means to their end. It seems like the deontologist watching Squid Game would have a horrible time. They'd think the whole thing is abominable. Yes, I mean, I think the deontologist sort of bites the soft bullet of going, yeah, we should do the last squid games to happen in real life. I, I think No, the, it's not as simple as that. It's why is it that you enjoyed certain parts of the series? I mean, as a deontologist, you should enjoy none of it. And you can't explain why we root for anyone. Yes, I think this is a nice question. So to think about, is it possible to think that if this were to happen in reality, it would all be totally wrong? and that you should endorse none of it, but at the same time derive pleasure from the show itself. And I, I think what happens is that we do this imaginative leap where we substitute our moral rules for uh, Hollywood morality. And Hollywood morality is really interesting because I think it lets you do a whole bunch of interesting 
moves that you couldn't do in the real world. One of which to my mind is the classic Clint Eastwood. You've got the bad guy who you've been chasing after the car chase and you managed to corner him. And you ordinarily would think as a police officer, obligation is to ensure that this guy gets a fair trial. But in the movie, you get to shoot him in the head and say, are you feeling lucky punk? Because it's a cool line. And you're like, you don't want to be dealing with these sort of overly liberal judges who are going to let this bad guy get away with it, right? And so there's a bunch of moves that you can make through aesthetic means that allow us to override our ordinary moral intuitions and enjoy it. And I think what we have to do is kind of park our ordinary sense of morality uh, and enjoy the show on that basis. There could also be another sense in which we don't endorse any of it, but you can still root for someone who's in a horrible situation because you can imagine being in that situation. Or you can both feel joy and recoil at the same time. You can say, wow, that's a terrible situation to be in, but I still root for this guy, or I wouldn't have done that, but given the situation, that was the best thing you could have done. I think a show like this is meant to make you feel uncomfortable at times. It's meant to take you on this, this sort of interesting emotional and aesthetic journey. And because of that, it's successful, even if it trespasses on your moral intuitions. And this pushes another problem, I think, for deontology. But in one way, it can make sense of the enjoyment of the show. And it can make sense of who we'd root for, even if there's a real situation. But it also, I think, sort of raises a bit of a complication for people that like that view, right? So I think even on some deontological views, it can make sense to say that you should want someone to have done something wrong in cases in which it truly brings about the best outcome. But even if that's not the case, you might face a situation where everybody's doing something wrong, as Jason pointed out, and, and might be the case this weekend. But it doesn't mean you should be indifferent in terms of your preferences about which wrong thing was done. So maybe you say, well, look, I prefer that no one does anything wrong and the rights prior to the good. But given that there's a whole bunch of wrongdoing here, I hope that the wrong is done that brings about the best, the impartially best outcome. And that can make sense. Although it sort of seems to weaken the force of morality. Why should we care about doing what's right in cases in which we desire that someone does something wrong. But take the trolley case. You might think it's wrong to push the person off of the bridge in front of the train to save the lives of five people. And that if you were in that situation, you wouldn't do it if you judged the right to be prior to the good. But nevertheless, if you hear that someone was in the situation, you might reasonably hope as a third party, I hope that they did the wrong thing and that three people got to live rather than just one. Or that I hope that there was only one instance of that rather than three. And maybe something like that is also going on in the background uh, when you watch Squid Games. I mean, what's interesting about the, the show as well is that you've got these quite fully developed characters. And so there are times when you want to root for someone, when you feel like this person has got a compelling narrative and I want to be along the ride with them. And there are other times when you have people that are bad guys and you think it would be good for them to be to be killed on the show because they're such a threat. One of the characters, the gangster character, takes the view that one way to win in this game is through active killing. So there's a moment when they're all in the dorm room and the lights are turned off and he sort of recruited a bunch of other people to be on his informal team. And he says, let's go and try and kill as many of the other side as we can because we'll get more money. And as they're doing this, the sort of big piggy bank in the sky is literally filling up with uh, piles of banknotes. Now, what's interesting is when you are in the situation, assume at some point that you realize this is last survivor and I'm either going to 
survive by winning all of the games or by killing everybody else? Are there restrictions on how you can play? Is it the honorable thing to do to play against the game? Or do you say, I just need to play against the other players and do a true Hunger Games? Yeah, good. I mean, that's a really interesting question because the perspective of the show, as you put it, seems to be that that's dishonorable. That it's dishonorable for the gangster to violate the rules of the game in this way. And he does it again when they have to play the game where they decide which plate of glass to jump on. And there's this, half of the plates of glass will fall through and half of them are reinforced such that they would support the way of two people. And he refuses to move and he's trying to force other people to jump ahead of him. Right? And I think the reaction that they want you to have is that that's wrong. But the problem with that is the rules of Squid Game are themselves unjust. So why could there be a conditional obligation to abide by the rules of the game when the rules of the games are themselves unfair? And maybe you think there's some other rules that are always applicable here, such as like murder being wrong, something like that. And that can explain why even within the rules of the game, it's wrong for the gangster to, to do this. And that could be right. I mean, that, that's basically the route that I want to go, but instead appealing to the rules of the kind of like impartial consequentialism that I like to say, that's, what's going to determine what's right or wrong, but it won't track what the show wants the viewers to have. Sometimes it'll be permissible to break the rules of the game. Sometimes it'll be permissible on my view to deceive people or find loopholes so that you can continue living at the expense of someone else's life. One last thing that's sort of interesting about the way that the gangster runs his crew. So like you kill someone, then he finds out if you kill people, more money goes in the pot and that's less people that you have to compete with in the subsequent games. And then they find themselves in a sort of Hobbesian state of nature. And it's like initial conditions where there's all of a sudden, it seems like there's no rules uh, in the bunks and anyone can do what they want. And then they form different alliances. So the protagonist forms an alliance with people where they say there's no leader and we're all equals. It's sort of like a socialist alliance. And the gangster does it sort of like a monarchy. Like he's the leader, he dictates the orders and everybody is supposed to follow him. And then you see them play out against one another. And I sort of expected initially them to lose pretty quickly and the like socialist commune of people to be the victors. But that's not how it really worked out in the sort of Hobson state of nature. Everybody fared pretty poorly, <laughs> no matter what sort of like proto state structure that they uh, created with their other Alliance members. And I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. I'm not sure what the show intended the viewer to take at that point, but it just seemed to be interesting in that it was contrary to what I expected. I think something that's interesting in the show that you've, you've mentioned, but I want to, to explore a bit more is that the utilitarian or the consequentialist has a good mechanism for weighing up bad alternatives. So you have a series of bad alternatives and you weigh up which one has the worst consequences and which ones have the best consequences. And you choose the one with relatively best consequences. They're not nice consequences, but they're relatively the best. The deontologist gets stuck. So the deontologist has very, he has no good reason for preferring one duty infraction over another. He just says, well, everything I, can, everything I do at this point is wrong. I have no good reason for preferring one wrong over another. And so I'm just stuck. I'm paralyzed. Or I must flip a coin. And that's a problem because it does seem like there are good reasons for thinking 
that killing three people is worse than killing two, it's very hard for the deontologist to explain why that is. It's very easy for the consequentialist. I mean, the deontologist might think that the more rights violations you have, the worse, the greater the rights violation, the worse. There is a version of the deontologist who can play the game. In other words, if you take the, the view that you can waive your rights, that once you have full knowledge and you know what it is you're waiving and you have informed consent, then this might require quite a different squid game. In other words, you might need to know in advance the, the fact that they're a sole survivor, the, a bit about the nature of the games themselves, knowing, for example, that you may be required to kill loved ones. Um, and that nonetheless, everybody who participates in the game accepts that risk and, and waives their rights. You might then think that on a deontological level, it's a permissible game in a way that some consequentialism is going to make it impermissible because you've got uh, all of the suffering and maybe you can't compensate it through money because there's marginal gains in utility. The difference between being getting a million dollars and a hundred million dollars doesn't make up uh, for all the suffering that you cause along the way. I, I do like that Travis has alluded to another kind of moral theory, this sense of a social contract and thinking about what the contracts are and the conditions of scarcity. In other words, it's not uh, a utopia that you're living, it's, it's quite a brutish place. And whether you could have a contract in those conditions, or whether this is an example of there being no contract. In other words, there can be no ultimate pact because everybody knows there will be a sole survivor. And we can have temporary alliances along the way, um, but they must in principle be broken. The other thing that I think that the show explores very well is this tension between merit and luck. And so on the bridge, once they get towards the end and a number of people have died along the way, and really those participants have no idea whether you should go left or right because the one is a thin plane of glass and the one is a thick plane of glass. It's not using any skill. It's just your bad luck, which number you drew, whether you were going to be at the beginning of the line, the end of the line, whether you correctly pick left or right, flip the coin. It's just the way the cookie crumbles and it's not about your skill. But there's one guy who worked in a glass factory. And once he gets to this end state, he says, I know which one is thick and which one is thin. And he looks at the glass and he correctly guesses. And there's an outrage among the participants who say, but why didn't you tell the rest of us? All those people needlessly died uh, because you didn't tell us that you know how to read the glass. And he says, I owe them nothing. And then what's interesting is that the rules of the game change. And so the guys in the room sort of see that there's this out because there's the, the glazer and they turn the lights down so that he can no longer use his trick. And the glazer is then thrown by the gangster uh, into one of those panes of glass. And his sort of sense of not acting you know, for the benefit of others is held against him and he then dies. There's this quite strong sense of Hollywood morality, as I alluded to earlier, which is that if you defend the weak and the vulnerable, you will prosper. So the protagonist throughout the show looks after those people that are vulnerable. He looks after the girl who's escaped from North Korea. He looks after the old man. He takes chances that are sort of seen as to be his detriment. And they pay off time and time again. In the tug of war game, for example, the reason why they survive, even though they have a lot of women on their team, and even though the old man is weak, the old man says, I know how to win a tug of war because when I was a kid, we used a particular tactic. And ultimately they survive because of having alliances with the weak. Yeah, that's one thing that I didn't like about the show and that I don't like about Hollywood morality in general, 
where it sets up what appears to be a sort of consequentialist dilemma and then has the protagonist do the thing that looks like it's going to bring about suboptimal consequences and then get rewarded anyway. As if there's not ever a true dilemma between what's in your prudential interest and what's going to benefit the poor and marginalized groups. And the underlying assumption seems to be that it's rational to help people who are in need in part, because it's ultimately the path to prosperity for yourself. And I think that's wrong because that's factually inaccurate. There really are trade-off cases that have to be made. And two, even if it were true, the reason to help other people, the emphasis I should think should be on the reason to do things that have other regarding benefits. Sometimes the right thing to do really is at the expense of your life for the benefit of others. Now, Squid Game does that to a far lesser extent than like, this is like a South Korean production, but then to like the Hollywood morality that you allude to, especially because you see people like the, you mentioned the marble game, sacrifice their life to save the North Korean defective. And I, that's, those are the parts of the show that I like the most because it really highlights that conflict. And other times it's sort of this more overarching narrative that you point to, where if you help the poor and prosperous of the week and you do things that look like they're not going to be good for you, actually things will work out in your favor because of karma or something like that. And that's just, <laughs> I think, factually inaccurate and morally backwards. Watching this show, it seemed to me like the, there was an underlying uh, set of principles that determined whether we should like a character or not, and whether a character should succeed or not. So the one is solidarity. So it seemed like if you participated with others in a cooperative way, you should win. You don't always win, but you should win. And we sympathize with those who help each other in a genuine way. The other principle that seems to play a role is honor. So any decep deception in the, on, on the part of any of the characters is either punished in the plot, or at least from the perspective of the film, we are made to dislike the dishonorable character, at least for that period of time. So it seems to me like those two principles are driving the show. And if you look at it that way, it seems neither deontological nor consequentialist. It seems like what's going on here is some sort of virtue ethics, that certain virtues are extremely important and they guide what is permissible or impermissible. Yeah, that seems exactly right to me. I just want to add that so understood virtue ethics wouldn't be inconsistent with various forms of deontology or consequentialism. Not that you said otherwise, but it just seems like maybe the show really is taking a stance on virtues being really important to moral character and not taking as much of a stance on what the correct normative ethical view is that identifies what philosophers would call the right and wrong making features of actions. Further evidence of that, if we think about the protagonist, when we first meet him, there's something really compelling about the person because we're not just dealing with someone who's had a bad hand dealt him. We're dealing with someone who's a compulsive gambler. So the scene starts off with his mother giving him money so that he can take his daughter out for a meal and a meal that she would enjoy. And he starts off by stealing from her, gambling at the racetrack and winning, but then being caught by a bunch of people who he owes money to and being robbed by the, uh, the North Korean defector. And so you, you've got someone who is partly the author of their own misfortunes and partly someone who's done on their luck. And throughout the, the show as it envelops, he becomes 
more and more of a character that you want to like because he, you know, is soft-hearted, because he cares for people, because he shows this uh, virtue of kindness. And there's also the sense of his loyalty and allegiance to his friend who had escaped the slum that they were living in and gone to the business school. And that final scene when they're actually playing the squid game, there's a sense in which now he views his former friend as someone evil because his friend had killed the North Korean defector. And there's an ambiguity that's at play there because we know that she'd gotten a glass shard in her stomach from the, from the prior game, from the, the, the glass going off, and that she was dying in quite a painful way. And so there's one sense that you have the, the mercy killer who, who kills her to sort of end her suffering, but he's viewed as a killer nonetheless and a murderer and now someone who deserves death. But he himself takes this view that he has been dishonorable. And instead of being killed by the protagonist, the protagonist kills no one throughout the show. The business school person kills himself. He commits, he commits suicide. And if you think about the sort of Japanese practice of harikiri, of driving a sword through your chest um, because you've done something dishonorable, we have a similar thing here where there's a, a knife put into his neck and he, and he kills himself. There's a moment before this where he pleads to say, let's both vote in the game that we've come this far, but we can both survive and that will be the best thing. And the response is the honorable thing is for you to have the money. And this is where things get interesting as well, is he gets this mass fortune. And what does he do with it, Travis? He doesn't do anything with it, which I think is wrong, assuming that he can do something with it. So I take it the way to read the characters that he's so understandably traumatized by this experience. He's just sort of left a mobile does he just kind of wanders through life day to day and he's not able to take seeming pleasure in anything anymore and he's not able to maybe like fully make rational decisions but nevertheless he's sitting on an enormous amount of money that initially he does nothing with uh his bank calls him in and tells him we could put this money into these high uh interest savings accounts we could invest it for you and you could make a great deal more and that might be seen by some people as being greedy in and of itself. But the thing is, money is fungible and you can use it to purchase goods and services. And some of those goods and services will save the lives of other people. So he is in a position, I think, where he could use his money to bestow a great deal of benefit upon many, many people. He could save many, many, many more lives than were lost in the squid game. And he's choosing not to, right? So now. One way to read it is that he lacks agency at that point, and maybe he's not culpable for not giving the money away. But if we imagine a version of the events where he has the like requisite cognitive capacity and agency to deliberate about how to use his money, and he could choose to use it to benefit others, but isn't doing that because maybe he thinks the money is tainted or he associates it with something that was really immoral, which it was. That I think is a mistake, and that I think is immoral in and of itself. What he ends up doing is taking the uh, little brother of the North Korean defector, right? And having the mother of the banker take care of that child and giving half of the money to that child, which is my hot take on that. That's too much, <laughs> right? That's a like lifetime of wealth. I think you could give an enormous amount of money to give the kid a good life, but not half of what was at stake in the squid game. And then take the rest and use that to save many, many other children who you don't happen to be affiliated with. Saves the lives of many starving children around the world who could benefit greatly from that or prevent the murder of other innocent beings with that money. 
So it sounds to me like there's a really great update for Peter Singer's a kid drowning in the <laughs> pond, and you've referenced the pond drowning earlier, which is the effective altruist who trains up so that he can fight in squid games, kill all these people, win all that money, so he can donate to charity and buy a whole bunch of malaria nets and deworming pools and maximize the good. Yeah, exactly. Well, Travis, I want to say thank you again for joining us on the show. It's always an absolute delight to have you. Uh, I'm glad that we got to marry your your two prior appearances on the show one on the philosophy of death and the other on the philosophy of film into uh, a film about lots of death. And I thought we had a, a really enlivening conversation that hopefully helps our viewers enjoy the show even more and sort of seeing some of the things that they might've missed. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here.